Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yeah, and I, I have an idea, Aaron. Uh, rumors of your demise have been greatly exaggerated. You actually are uh, alive and breathing, but you have relocated. You and I are now once again at a familiar distance. I'm here in Nashville and you are back out on the left coast. What are you doing out there? I'm working nonstop, man. I, we're, we're three podcasts behind because I haven't had any editing time. So I feel bad. We are, we're recording a third episode right now and there's two more i haven't put up so sorry guys uh what you think I we need yeah go we ahead. need a volunteer editor maybe yeah, i don't know I'll take it okay. uh yeah I'm, I'm doing my regular work and i'm hanging out with my parents giving them some time uh taking Good. my daughter around where she needs to go to hang with friends i have a uh an intensive this weekend. The first ever Soul Architecture intensive is happening this Friday. Oh, fantastic! Uh, yeah, I wasn't sure how that was going to go with all the the new rules that have been reimposed in California. Uh, so we're definitely down in numbers, but enough to uh, to do it, and we'll have a good time. Probably have like twenty five or so. Oh wow! Um, so I'm excited, but that takes a lot of extra time to <laughs> write and print notes and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah so, yeah. yeah, and I got to uh, to preach at Vintage yesterday. It is Monday, isn't it? So that, it's Monday. Yeah. Oh, that wow. Because last year when I came and visited, I didn't want to preach because I'd only been gone six months. And yeah. even though it would have been fun for me, I feel like it's just kind of disrespectful and or confusing when you've only been gone six months and then you yeah. act like, Hey, let me, let me do this and get you all excited just cause I'm visiting. It's just, I don't know. I felt, felt like it wasn't the right thing to do last year, but it's been a year and a half. It felt good. It was just so nice to see everybody. Um, so yeah, had a, had a great time yesterday. Oh, that's wonderful. And how much longer are you going to be out there? I think till about August 12th. Holy so smokes. Like three okay. more weeks or so. I don't yeah. know. I yeah. don't even know what the date is. I wake up early and go to bed just falling asleep at the computer. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. I, well, life is, is slow and uneventful here in Tennessee. I don't have a whole lot going on in Franklin. Although things are popping online on Slack and with uh, the online meetings, the Samson meetings, those are going. We got some, and uh, Dr. Tom Mocha and uh, is we've got some fantastic ideas on the horizon for, uh, yeah, road trips, summer cruises. Can't wait for this pandemic to finally. And so that we can get back out now, uh, yeah, get, get back out and connect with guys. I need but some for guy now, fun. Yeah. What do you think? What 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 do you think of a of a of a sleeper bus with sixteen berths? Maybe. Well, uh, I mean, usually we don't bring women, but if you've got pregnant women that are ready to <laughs> pop, I guess I'm all for it. <laughs> I don't know how that ties into recovery or Samson at all. Uh, but yeah, I trust yeah, you yeah, to yeah. an extent. So, yeah, yes. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that'd be great. You kidding me? I've been wanting to go on a Samson road trip for years. Used to do those quite frequently and without me because I was across the country. So, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm ready to go hang out in different towns with, with our Samson buddies. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, a few weeks ago... Gosh, it's been, I think it, time is, I've lost track of time here. Time has gotten very strange in this pandemic. It may have been weeks ago. It may have been months ago. It wasn't all that long ago. Um, I was introduced via my friend uh, David Hampton on the Positive Sobriety Podcast to another guy working in recovery uh, here in Nashville, a guy named Michael Brody Waite, and I have become a fan and he has, uh, he's agreed to visit with us 
Listeners, you are going to want to stick around for this conversation. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. I have been looking forward to this conversation ever since I first was introduced to Michael Brody Waite by my friend David Hampton uh, in an earlier episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. I was so moved by that conversation that I quickly ordered the book, uh, a wonderful book that Michael has just released called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. Michael Brody, wait, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks for uh, actually ordering the book. Yeah. Uh, and you did, I did the audio. You did a great job on the audio, by the way. Thank you. Um, uh, that was harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> like It's simple. Uh, like You just go read your own book, and it's like, no, it's like three days worth of you reading your own book. By the time you're done, you never want to talk to your book again. <laughs> but you've you've got a sonorous, sexy voice. I'll bet it sounds great. It yeah, really you know does. what? It was it was a great compliment being told that I had a face for radio. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Michael, for those of our listeners, and this will be a significant percentage of our listeners who are not familiar with you. This is their first introduction. They don't know you. They don't know your story. Why don't we start out? if you don't mind, give us the thumbnail sketch of how you got to where you are today working in this, uh, working in a, what I would call a recovery field, a coaching field. Uh, how'd, how'd you get there? Sure. So, um, I had a pretty average childhood growing up and then I found myself in my freshman year of college, uh, away from my family feeling, completely uncomfortable in my own skin, um, feeling as if uh, when they had passed out the instructions for how to deal with life on life's terms, I had been skipped. And mm -hmm. that started a process where I used alcohol and drugs to numb myself. Um, so much so that by my junior year, uh, I had about one year's worth of credits and I got kicked out because I was uh, drunk and high all the time. And that really, for me, you know, getting high and staying high and doing whatever it took to find the money to stay high became my full-time job and my full-time obsession. And so by the age of 23, I'd been kicked out of my school. I'd been kicked out of my job. I've been kicked out of my house. My car had been repossessed and I was throwing up blood. And the truth was, I didn't think that I was going to see my 30th birthday. And I was actually fine with that because I didn't know how to live life on life's terms. And at the end, when, you know, I, as a homeless drug addict, you do not want to live on the street if you can avoid it. And I've been, I've been couch surfing my buddy's couch, but eventually I knew that that was going to run out. My parents offered to send me to rehab and I avoided it for a long time. But when I realized I'd have to sleep on the street, I decided it was a great alternative. And so September 1st, 2002, I woke up at the Betty Ford Center in Rancho Mirage, California. And that is my clean date, September 1st, 2002. I've been clean every day since. And when wow. I woke up at Betty Ford, um, I started my process of learning 12-step recovery. And over the last 17 years, uh, recovery has become the centerpiece of my entire life. And what I went through was a series of transitions in my professional life where I went from practicing the principles that addicts learn to recover in my professional life, thinking that it was going to hurt me, and then realizing that it gave me a competitive advantage and then leaving a Fortune 50 company and founding my own company and it becoming an Inc. 500 company using the principles that addicts use, learn to recover. And then I gave a TED Talk two years ago that is a, a TED Talk called Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do. And now it's got over 1.7 million views. And I wrote the book and now I'm on a mission to tell people that they can revolutionize the rules of leadership simply by practicing the principles 
that addicts learn to save their life in their leadership philosophy, and then they can improve their life as well. So that's the thumbnail sketch. Wow. That was a very efficient thumbnail sketch. Uh, I wonder if we could back it up a little bit. So uh, oh, just out of curiosity, was Harry Heratunian at Betty Ford when you were there? Uh, man, I've done a lot of okay. drugs. My, Nate, my, my, my memory is, is not the best. I, I just, um, I'm just wondering who gave you the direction. So you're getting out. You're I, in I Southern think, California. I don't remember him if he was. How did you want? Somebody told you that you were going to need to find a new place to live. Tell us how you came to Nashville. Because you, by the way, are in Nashville. Is Nashville still yes. your home base? I, I yeah. live in Nashville, but I, I I say dude and y'all because I'm from California, but I've spent the last 17 years in Nashville. So I can say uh, dude, y'all in one sentence and qualify. <laughs> I, I haven't got the yells yet, but uh, I do get a lot of looks for the amount of dudes I throw out in Tennessee. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Aaron, how, Aaron how relocated a couple years ago. Yeah. Aaron um, reloaded a couple years ago from Central Coast of California. So, oh, okay. California right. guys. So, yeah. so right. Aaron, when you refer to uh, the freeway, do you say the 80 or 80? Oh, it's always got a the in it. And it's always a freeway, which people don't seem to get. But yeah, I'm, I'm okay. always on on the the 24 the 860 and and yeah, the amount of people that, saying the all the time too yeah <laughs> and that only makes me resolve to never stop saying it so sorry. <laughs> i like it all right so so nate the, the question was how to end up in nashville yeah yeah and then talk talk us through kind of those those early days showing up it's just a fabulous story showing up in the halfway house needing to get a job and then kind of the, yeah, l- learning sure. the intersection of recovery and uh, business. Well, so the first thing is, is that, you know, everybody always tells addicts to stop using and that's like the worst thing to do. It doesn't make a difference. And so we mm-hmm. don't stop using or acting in our addictive behavior until you tell us what to start. So telling us what to stop doesn't help. So right. waking up at Betty Ford, they equipped me with a step-by-step system for me, my personal experience, 12 step system. And they showed me what to start and, and what to do. And, and, and part of that process for me was learning how to surrender. Um, and so there were, you know, if I were to take for anyone out there, the, what I learned in, in 12 step recovery, especially starting at Betty Ford, I've distilled it down to three principles. It's practice rigorous authenticity, mm-hmm. surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. And when you put these three principles together and you start practicing them in the real world, you start making different decisions. And the first place where I made that different decision was when they pulled this, uh, my therapist uh, pulled me into his office when I was in treatment at Betty Ford and he said, look, Mike, you've got a problem. You're sicker than the rest of the addicts, which you never want to hear when you are in a drug rehab, (laughs) that you're sicker than Mm -hmm. everybody else there. And he said, you just, you just think too freaking much. And, and so he said, you need to do more work. And he threw two brochures down on the table. And one was for a place in Monterey, California, which is my favorite place in California. Um, right. And another was for a treatment center in a city called Nunnally, Tennessee. It was a place called mm-hmm. The Ranch. Um, yeah. On the cover were cowboys and horses. So I knew I wasn't going to go there um, because I was a California dude. And that was the first time that I had any experience making a decision that wasn't in my will. That was me kind of practicing surrender and and choosing a different path. And so you fast forward 30 days later, you know, I'm 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 in Nashville, Tennessee, basically. I'm in Nunnally, Tennessee, which is 45 minutes outside of Nashville or an hour outside of Nashville. Um, I'm doing some more work and I get out of there after a couple months and I go into a halfway house. And when I walk into the halfway house, I drop my bags. I'm like totally excited to start my new recovery life. And, and the, the house manager says, you've got five business days to get a job or get the F out of here. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I going <laughs> to, how am I going to get a job in five business days? Um, I haven't, I haven't been able to like string three days together being a productive member of society, let alone get a job. And so that, that I had to go out looking for one and I'll stop there to see if any questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. This is this is great. Keep. Uh, yeah, I want to know what job going. you found. Keep going. I know. <laughs> me too. Um, <laughs> so, 
So here was the deal. So I had like a three or four year gap on my resume. I didn't have a college degree. Um, I didn't know how to say y'all, so I didn't fit in. So, <laughs> and I had long hair, hoop earrings, and I was wearing flip flops. So I stuck out in like every single level. I was like not employable. And so yeah. I went and I applied at all these different places. And I knew that this gap on my resume was going to be an issue. Lack of college degree was going to be an issue. And um, I was three business days into the five business days that I had to get a job. And I got a call from a place called Sam Goody. Now, for those of you listening, Sam Goody, if you're older than me, is a record store. Uh-huh. If you're my age, it's a CD store. And if you're young, you're saying, I have no idea what the fuck Sam Goody is. I know what Spotify <laughs> is. And there, there was a period of time, believe it or not, where you had to walk into a store to get your music. Anyhow. Yeah. So they called me for a job interview. And I knew that that was my one shot. And if I didn't get that job, I was going to get kicked out of the halfway house. And if I got kicked out of the halfway house, I was going to be living on the street, which meant I would use, which meant that I believed that I would be dead within a year. So I called my sponsor. And I'm like, dude, what do I tell him? And, and what do I tell the manager when he asked me about this three-year or four-year gap in my resume? And my sponsor said, it's really simple. Just tell him the truth. I was like, tell him the truth. What the hell are you talking about, dude? Like, I'm, <laughs> tell him that I'm a drug addict. And the reason that I don't have any work on my resume is because I was using drugs every single day for four years straight. Like, that's not going to help me get a job. And he said, well, how seriously do you want to surrender? Like, how, how committed to these principles are you? And, and he was referring yeah. to practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work or the versions of those. And, yeah. and I was like, well, I mean... I don't want to die, so I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And he said, okay, so if you're going to do whatever I tell you to do, go in there and be honest and just surrender the outcome. And so I go into this job interview and I am terrified because like for anyone listening, I mean, I guess for this podcast, everybody can relate to addiction, but even if you, even if you are just somebody listening and you can't, nobody wants to disclose the worst thing about them in a job interview when it's the only interview that you got for a job and it's the only way you're going to stay where you're living. But I, but I got to think, you know, you're always waiting for that question, the job interview, like what are your weaknesses? And people come up with the, I'm just too nice to people and it's exhausting. You're probably the only one that had an answer to that. That surprised the person interviewing you. (laughs) It, 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 he was very taken aback. And I thought that by the look on his face, I was screwed. Um, I thought he was totally judging me and like, there's no way I'll let this addict work for me. But, um, I, I surrendered the outcome and I did the uncomfortable work and, and he gave me the job. And, and to your point later, you fast forward to where I'm running my own company. That was the question that I used. What are your greatest weaknesses to separate people that were truly authentic um, and yeah. the people that were pretending to be authentic because they heard that I liked authenticity and I would ask that question in a job interview and then people would answer, you know, I work too hard or some bullshit like that. And, and I would just like pause and look at them and be like, all right, that's a great interview answer, but this is time to get real. Tell me your worst weakness as a human being on this earth. And they would always mm. be like, um, taken aback and let me think. And then they would say something like I check Facebook too much or I buy too many shoes or something like that. Yeah. yeah and so, yeah. I had to set the tone. So third question, I'd be like, okay, you know, in, in my mind's three strikes and you're out. And I'd say, look, this is what I'm looking for. I'm an entrepreneur who works really hard. I'm a recovering addict. And the problem is, is that when I experience success, I'm almost incapable of experiencing joy. And it's not a way to brag about my success. It's a way to tell you that I actually hurt the morale of my team. And when I'm at home, it makes the people that live with me somewhat miserable. I can't spin that as a positive. It's my work right now. So right now, as a human being on this earth, what is your greatest weakness? And if they couldn't answer that question, I didn't care how many degrees. I didn't care how qualified they were. They couldn't work for me. And all Mm -hmm. comes back to that moment at Sam Goody where I had to do that. And that's how I know I can trust somebody is when they're authentic in a job interview. So how many times did it take for you to be authentic to others and see that they didn't reject you, but probably many were drawn to you for your brain and your soul to start believing that there was power in that and not weakness. At that job interview at Sam Goody, um, I, I just, I was, I was, I took off my, you know, I call it a mask. Um, and it's about living and leading mask free. And so I took off my mask, obviously not pandemic mask, uh, (laughs) philosophical mask. Um, and, 
and, and, and I survived that didn't tell me it was safe to be myself in this world. Um, what happened was after that, I worked at a fortune 50 company for eight years. And like I said, I stuck out like a sore thumb, but it wasn't because of the flip flops and me saying dude and long hair. It's because, um, I aggressively shared my weaknesses. I said no to things, even including, even when customers asked for things that were unreasonable, I had the difficult conversations. And even if the boss's boss was in the room, I, I shared my unique perspective and it's not because I was trying to be good professionally. I thought those things would hurt me. It's because I was taught that I had to practice these principles in all my affairs. And mm. so what two things happened, I continued to remain uncomfortable at work, practicing those principles and I continued to get promoted. And so within eight years, I'd gone from, you know, having mentors to those mentors being my employees and having a, you know, uh, was a $250 million P and L and 19 direct reports. I'm in my twenties as a, as a recovering drug addict with no college degree. And that's when over that period of time, I just kept executing to these principles because my life depended on it. But I started to realize that they were giving me a competitive advantage because there were certain people that I worked that worked for me or worked with me that felt connected to me in a way they couldn't others because I was so genuine and vulnerable, not because I wanted to be, but because I was told I had to be, or I would die. Um, and I also was able to reclaim a tremendous amount of energy. No one teaches professionals how to surrender, but you, everybody's seen a salesperson focusing on their quota instead of making calls. And so it's not hard to imagine, you know, working in a corporate environment, how much energy you can reclaim shifting your focus from what you can't control to what you can control. And uncomfortable work is something that everybody in recovery knows how to do that most people don't. And, and that's what allowed me to grow so fast that I was able to get eight promotions in eight years. And that's when I realized it was a competitive advantage. And that's when I decided to go try to test that theory at scale and start a company on those principles. So that's an interesting but difficult uh, little piece about learning what you can control and what you can't control, especially when surrender is about losing control. So how did you find the line between the healthy things that you need to engage and control and what are the things you need to surrender? Well, I, I wouldn't say I found the line. I, it's good. The same way you find the middle uh, line on, on the freeway, if you're hitting both of the <laughs> guardrails, <laughs> um, I made a lot of mistakes, uh, trying to understand the difference between what I could control and what I couldn't control. Um, I, I think that for me, one of the most important things that I've learned is the power of writing something down with clarity and intention can be really uh, transformative in terms of how you think, uh, changing how you think and then changing how you act. And so for me, one of the simplest things to do, and it's so powerful, is to take out a piece of paper and write can't control in the upper left and write can't control in the upper right. And whatever situation that I'm facing, whatever outcome it is that I need to surrender writing down on the left-hand column the things that I can't control one by one and then writing down the things that I can control one by one and then crossing out every single thing that I can't control and then circling everything that I can. What happens is when I do that, I've engaged multiple parts of my brain and my body in actually moving that energy and shifting that energy over. And so like an example would be um, I inherited a sales team that was like at the bottom of the rankings um, at my time at the fortune 50 company and, and everybody told me they were a lost cause. And so they like to like, just complain and, and, and sit in a room and talk about how management and leadership should change the, the territory should change the, the reporting and all that kind of stuff. And I got sucked into that for a little while and it was miserable. And then I would go to my 12 step meetings and I'd have all these people talking about surrender. I'd be like, crap, like I'm not practicing these principles in all my affairs. So one of the things I did was I came back and I said, all right, I'm going to list out everything about the sales team in this situation and this company, my bosses that I can't control, list them all out. All right. What can I control? And one thing I noticed was all the time we were spending complaining about what our bosses should do and what our employees should do and all that stuff. We could have shifted to just spending more time training our people to overcome the obstacles over which we had no control. And I started just like rolling my sleeves up and spending so much time. I created a training program, started training all the people way above and beyond what my role was. And lo and behold, within like three months, we were number one. And, and it's just like, it's so simple, man. P 
even today's world, right? Like through social media and the internet, we focus, we want to ingest as much information as we possibly can about the things that we can't control, just like empty calories. And meanwhile, <laughs> we leave a tremendous amount of what we can't control on the table. And I just had yeah. to, I just had to practice that all, but I, I, for that example, that's a positive one. I have like four others where I totally beat my head against the wall to, in order to learn that lesson. So I'm, I, I imagine you do this part naturally at this point because you've practiced it, but if you've got the can and can't control, uh, grid, is there a certain point where you added the axis of should and shouldn't control where even things you could control? you chose to surrender for other reasons? So that, that's a really great question. Um, and so I, for when I, when I teach people the three principle system, one of the things that I, that I tell them is there are things that technically you can control, but you shouldn't. And so you can put them in the can't category. Um, and, and so like, I think about, for example, um, I have an 18 month old daughter. Technically, I could physically stop her from doing a lot of different things, but there's no way I'm going to impose that level of physical will on, on my daughter because I don't want her to experience that growing up. And so that's not something I, I, I can't control whether she is like running around like a maniac um, with a, you know, a fork in her hand and, and like trying to threaten my dog with, you know, and she doesn't realize what she's doing. Um, but what I can do is read up on the best way to educate a child on, you know, in, in, at 18 months on like, what are the right things and the wrong things. And one of the things I learned was, um, informing my child that there's an option is far more impactful than telling her, you know, trying to physically rip the, the fork out of her hand. And so there are all kinds of things that we have in our lives, whether it's romantic relationships, relationships with customers, relationships with bosses, where there are shoulds and shouldn'ts, but they still end up in the can and can't if you're using discretion, you're understanding whether or not you're trying to actually control the outcome or surrender it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, and that gets increasingly nuanced uh, with the more years of maturity, I'm sure. Early on, you're it just does. vigorously and going with can and can't. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, you know, so like in my book, it, it outlines, you know, how you can take these three principles and it gives you a step-by-step -step system to master them. And one of the things I talk about is it's muscle memory. This isn't like, uh, you know, a one book, a one talk, a one workshop and you're done. Everybody wants the Ferrari moment where they like win the Ferrari and, and they get to talk to Oprah and it's all good. Um, this is about chopping all those moments up into bite-sized pieces every single day and building a level of resilience that you can only have um, based off of repetition. And so what we do is we have them apply these three principles to a specific area of their life every 28 days. And, and so what ends up, and then they read the, they read this uh, action card that they create on a daily basis. And so what it does is over time, it helps them take the awareness of the fact that the majority of the suffering occurs in not surrendering the outcome and, and, and it takes the process of a, being aware of that and then being able to move into the can and can't control from 28 days to 28 minutes to 28 seconds. And so a really great example of this is a personal example of when my house, you said floods. So it's interesting when my house flooded, um, I woke up one morning and my entire, uh, I have three levels in my house. My entire bottom level was like underwater. Um, a supply line to a faucet had burst like right when we fell asleep in the middle level. And so when we got down the stairs and saw if there was now a lake in our house, thank you very much. My wife was running around going, oh my God, what are we going to do? Oh my God, everything is damaged. And I said, none of that matters. It's all in the can't control bucket. All that matters is identifying how we turn off the water. That's the only thing we can control right now. And it was yeah. a reflex, an involuntary reflex that saved us a tremendous amount of time and energy because I had practiced it so many times. Surrendering the outcome is simple, but it isn't easy. And if you want to, I mean, the other example would be if you want to hit three pointers like Steph Curry, you got to take 2,000 three pointers every day in practice if you want to be able to do that to be able to train your muscles. So these are simple concepts. It's about the repetition and, and, and application that make them easier to, to be able to apply in any circumstance. Well, I, I have another nuanced question, but Nate, do you, I don't want to, you know, step on what you're thinking right now. I, I heard your breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's so much more I want to cover. Um, 
I love the way that you have simplified the system. If I understand you correctly, Michael, you're saying that really to succeed, we need three things. We need a system. We need a sponsor. We need a society. I resonate with all three. Yes. And the way you have simplified the 12 steps into three principles to, you know, a commitment to rigorous honesty, a commitment to surrendering the outcome. Boy, is that a powerful phrase, surrendering the outcome. Uh, and, um, and the, uh, Suddenly, I'm blanking out. What happened? Up? What's the What's the third principle? Society. I know what it is. Suddenly, do yeah, the yeah. Hard thing. Oh, uh, sorry. yeah. Do the uncomfortable. Do the uncomfortable work. Yep. Do the uncomfortable work. Yeah. Uh, again, what a powerful phrase! I actually wrote a blog piece on that last week. I shamelessly stole it from you. Um, I'm glad. <laughs> okay, so that's the system. Now you say everybody needs a sponsor, which is something we also say in the Samson Society. We call that person a Silas, but it's the same thing. And I've got to tell you, people have been asking me for 15 years to explain, you know, what a Silas is and what a Silas does. And we've been working especially hard this last year to start really to flesh that out better. What I've started to tell people is I think you've done a better job of explaining that role than than I've ever done myself or heard anybody else uh, do. You know, we always say in the Samson Society that everybody needs a Silas and anybody can be a Silas. You understand that it's this is not a hierarchical thing. Yep. This is a mutually beneficial relationship. I wonder, can you take a few minutes, whether you want to do it by telling us a, a couple of sponsor stories or uh, what, yeah, Explained a little bit of your thinking around that sponsor relationship and why everybody needs one. So the the sponsor relationship. So first of all, the term sponsorship in a twelve step context or Silas in Samson Society context is very different than than the term sponsorship in um, a corporate setting. Uh, where yeah. it's, it's conveyed as a mentor. So we we're familiar with bosses. We're familiar with mentors. We're familiar with coaches. What makes a sponsor so amazing is that their qualifications are nothing but having been in the seat of the person that they are helping. They do not need to be the expert. They do not need to have accrued any specific level of wisdom or mastery. All they need to have is experience applying the same solution to the same problem And what gives them value is the position that they have. So for example, when I, when I first got clean, you know, I got a sponsor and my sponsor was just like this awesome dude. And I looked up to him and and I thought, you know, he's like, don't put me on a pedestal. Don't put me on a pedestal. But like, I totally did. I thought Chuck could do no wrong. And then, um, one of the things that happened was about a year into our relationship, I saw him at a Christmas party eating so many desserts that he should have gone into some level of like shock. His body should not have been able to absorb this level of sugar. And what I saw as an addict was his addiction in full, full, his, 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 his disease of addiction in full display. And I remember telling him, I didn't know if I could still be his sponsee because I didn't know if I respected him anymore. And he said, dude, I told you that if you put me on a pedestal, I will fall off. My job is to share my experience applying the 12 steps to my life with you, which I have done. And this is another example where I will need to do that. And I will share those experiences with you and we will walk through it together. And I hope that you learn something so that you can avoid the mistakes that I've made. Up until that point, when I had been told not to put my sponsor on a pedestal, I thought that that was just some slick stuff that you say to like be humble. I didn't actually understand that they freaking meant it. Um, and, and, and so one of the things I've come to understand, and this is how I led my company is what makes a sponsor remarkable is they say, I'm not the expert. The system is the expert. So for, yes. for mask free, it's, it's the three principles for 12 step. It's the 12 steps, but whatever it is, they say the, they give credit to the system. So now there's no ego. And then now that you've gotten rid of the ego, they're free to share their experience. And yes, we, we always hear about people sharing their experience, but when you are put in a quote unquote leadership position, there is a pressure to not share your failures and your insecurities and your, and your mistakes and your weaknesses as equally as you should your strengths. But a sponsor 
actually prioritizes sharing their challenges as a way to demonstrate to their sponsee, this is how I overcame this thing. This is how I led myself using this system. And, and in yeah. only talking about their experience and only talking about the system and, and, and using their mistakes and their failures and their challenges as a way to demonstrate how the system works, they're demonstrating how they use the system to lead themselves. And that gives the sponsee the ability to own their experience and they get to actually learn because most of the leaders in this world want to go struggle in private and then they want to come back when they know the whole story. But a truly great leader says, I'm in the middle of the shit right now. I have no idea how the story ends, but walk with me and watch what I do. And that's what a sponsor allows you to do. They allow you to watch them in the battle, how they lead themselves. And as a result, they don't need to take any responsibility for leading the sponsee. They create automatic leadership by giving them a 100% unfiltered view of their experience working a perfect or proven system. And we do not have that in the majority of the world when we look at leaders or coaches or mentors or whatever. And it's a really beautiful thing that I, I, just, I just think is the secret sauce to really helping someone learn this way of life. Fabulous. And by the way, you do a wonderful job in your book of you know, vulnerable self-disclosure. We talk very personally about, uh, you know, uh, business relationships and conflict. I'm not going to uh, steal the story. It's well worth uh, the price of the book. Uh, but you give us a nice unvarnished look at uh, your own process. And that's a great gift. Well, thank you for that. Actually, I'll t if you don't mind, can I talk on that real quick? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So, because that, that is the role of the sponsor. So. Yeah. So writing this book, I got halfway through and I realized I didn't like it um, because I was trying to be a guru or an expert and make sure that people thought that what I said was credible. Yeah. And I stopped just sharing my experience. I had too many statistics referenced, too many studies. I, my insecurity was on every freaking page. And that was arrogance. That was my ego taking responsibility for what was on that page. And so what I had to do was I had to completely, my wife had to have an intervention on me and I had to go back to my job is to just share my experience. That's it. You want to talk about yeah. surrender? It stops at me. It's, it, it, I, I had to stop thinking about what everybody was going to do with the information. And when I did yeah. that, one of the things that was enabled that previously was not was every self-help book that I've read or most of them that are like that give you a step-by-step -step process to achieve a better life. And you know, whatever the, the, the stuff is that the, someone's selling. Um, yeah, it ends with, and you're going to, you know, I got a Ferrari and I got the perfect life and you can too, or whatever. I keep, I like yeah. to use a Ferrari thing just as an example. Um, I wanted to end my book with the year that I threw everything that I'm teaching the reader away and was a total hypocrite. <laughs> and, and, and people told me I shouldn't do that because I would lose credibility with the reader. And when no, I was you... trying to be a leader, that, that, that made sense. But trying to be a sponsor, yeah, th that's isn't, totally different, isn't that, man. Isn't that hilarious that you had reached this level of knowledge but forgotten the lesson that you learned at Sam Goody? A hundred percent. It's the reason why, and I appreciate Nate bringing it up in my book. I teach people the system, these three principles, practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. But then I tell them that the chapter they just read doesn't do jack for them. If they don't get a mass free sponsor or the equivalent, if they're in a re other recovery program and a society, because that's the only way that you create 360 degrees of awareness and 360 degrees of reinforcement, because our problem, whether it's the disease of addiction or wearing masks and hiding our true selves, it's a problem of self-deception and we can't see it ourselves. And so I needed to have people around me and to be continuously engaged in a process with a sponsor and with other people that are using the same system that I am to be able to see that I was actually violating the very thing that I was allegedly supposed to be an expert. And that's the thing that I tell people now as they, as they join our mask-free movement, I'm like, dude, I'm going to mess this up. Like I struggle with masks. I struggle with, I struggle practicing these principles. I'm going to mess this up, but I'm going to share my experience and that's all I can really hope to do. And so, if, so looking back, of course I forgot, like it should have been predictable, 
But right. that's how the last chapter is called A Tale of Two Divorces. And it's about the year in which I had to divorce my wife, my business partner, and sell the business that I loved, all because I had stopped practicing everything that I preached. I have a yeah, question boy. about step three. We're running out of time, I guess. But uh, doing the Go uncomfortable ahead. work. Um, I know for me personally, I was wired from a young age that to do the hardest thing I always thought was the best thing. That's going to, that's just going to be great. And I got tired by my thirties and look back at a whole lot of unnecessary work. And when I look at friends, uh, especially at the beginning of recovery, they're going from one extreme behavior to an, mm-hmm. the extreme of recovery. How do you find balance where you're not avoiding uncomfortable work, but you're not living under the delusion that just because stuff is hard, it must be the right path. That's a great question. And I think there's, there's two pieces to the answer for me, at least Um, the first one is delineating between hard work and uncomfortable work. Um, Mm -hmm. To me, I think that people are taught um, hard work and smart work, especially in professional worlds. Uh, those are physical and intellectual, uncomfortable work is emotional in nature. It is literally a sensation in our body that deters us from taking action. That's positive for us. We've all seen the person that's doing eight hours of hard work, avoiding 10 minutes of uncomfortable work. Mm. Um, and that's like having the hard conversation with somebody that you're in a relationship with, and then deciding that you're going to spend a whole vacation with them when you wanted to say no to the vacation, you just, you're doing all this hard work. Um, but you're avoiding the uncomfortable work. And so for me, it's important, like I need to do smart work. I need to do hard work and I need to do uncomfortable work. I just find that the, the most exponential fruit lies under uncomfortable work. And, and so a it's understanding that difference, but B that's why to me, a mask free sponsor or, or a 12 step sponsor or a Silas, that's why a sponsor in general that's why a society of other people in general are so important. And it's why we have to stay. Um, that's why this is not a destination. When we work, when you work the 12 steps, when you work the three principles, whatever the equivalent is in Samson society, it's not a destination. It's, 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 you can't breathe all of your future breaths for all the oxygen you'll need in your lifetime right now. You can't stay in tremendous physical fitness shape if you work out really hard right now. This is about maintaining a muscle over time. And that means that we need to continuously submit ourselves to the scrutiny of the system, the sponsor and the society so that when we are, when we think we're executing, you know, hard work because we're like not being scared, but it actually turns out that we're being compulsive about hard work or we're, we're doing things that are totally just in our addiction is just driving the bus to me, that 360 degrees of awareness allows us to understand when our addiction is working for us and when it's working against us. And to me, you can't, it goes back to, again, for me, addiction problem with, with, it's about deception and I can't spot my own self-deception. So I need the guide. I need the system. I need the other people that are working the system with a guide so they can model behavior and I can see myself in them. And so that they can also show me the things that I can't see in myself. So I can see when I've taken something that's an incredible tool and I've turned it into a weapon against myself and I don't even know it. Um, I went from a guy that couldn't show up for anything to a compulsive to-do list maker that was like becoming a human doing. And I just went to the total other side of the spectrum. I needed my sponsor, my other recovering people to point out that, Hey, Michael, maybe your addiction is just as much in control. It's just singing a different tune. What if we looked at what moderation looked like? And I'm like, Ooh, moderation. I'm really good at either doing something all the time or never doing it. I don't know how to do something in between. And that's where I found a lot of growth. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, I was talking to a good friend today, uh, and I didn't bring you up. He brought you up. He brought the book up, and he said, you know, there have been several times in this book where I've, uh, while reading it where I've had to put the book down just because it hit so close to home. Mm. And he said, and those were times when Michael was talking about the masks. So I'd like to move uh, the discussion here with the time we have left. You've got a... It's unfortunate that in our present cultural moment, uh, that some people may 
get the wrong impression when you say that you've got the mask-free movement. Uh, it has nothing to do with, uh, you know. Yeah. It's uh, ideal for all those right people now. sick of masks. They're buying this book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want a mask-free yeah. zone. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but the, but the, but the idea not, that... It's non-physical masks. Yeah. So a guy, but even somebody who's not addicted to drugs or alcohol or porn or sex can be very addicted to a mask, to a persona. Uh, cast a little vision for us, if you will, Michael, for a mask-free movement and a mask-free life. Absolutely. And then, so, and, uh, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. And I want our listeners to know, you know, what kind of diagnostic tools you have available and, you know, what kind of uh, support and company and guidance are available to people. Who want so to here's the deal. For those of us in addiction, we all probably are harboring a secret theory that everybody's got a little bit of addiction in them. And I'm here to tell you that that's true um, from my perspective. And I am my book focuses on the addiction that nobody is talking about. And that is the addiction to wearing masks. And as you said, Nate. I'm not talking about physical masks. This has nothing to do with a pandemic or politics. This is about the thousands of years that leaders have operated in a command and control leadership structure where they think they have to hide aspects of their true selves to command respect. And I go into detail in my book as to why our modern day times have changed and why living and leading with a mask is dangerous. And I've also worked with for your leadership. It's dangerous for your leadership. I've also worked with really big companies like Google and Dell and Global Payments and nonprofits and startups, and I've assessed over 1,500 leaders. And what I've identified is that there are four masks that are holding back every individual team and organization and costing them on average 500 hours a year. And the four masks are, the first one is saying yes when you could say no. The second one is hiding a weakness. The third one is avoiding difficult conversations. And the fourth one is holding back your unique perspective. And 90% of leaders report wearing those masks at work and in their personal lives. And that means that while like what, 10% of us, 20, 30% of us reckon, are recognized as having addiction issues with a substance or a behavior, all of us are is experiencing a level of addiction to hiding our true selves because we think that we won't be successful if we show our true selves and the beauty is, is that I think that addiction, one of the reasons that those of us that are addicts engage in our behavior is because we're uncomfortable in our own skin. And so yeah. we, we move to things and processes that allow us to become numb. And the beautiful thing is 80 years ago, there was this system that was created in the 12 steps that solved that problem. But I think that in that I've pulled out the, the, the core pieces that can actually encourage anyone to solve the original problem, which is being comfortable in your own skin. And so today, my mass free program, we've got over 400 people in it right now. Um, and what we do is we teach people how to use these three principles as a system and to, we connect them to a mass free sponsor and we have mass free society meetings where people are able to practice the skills that are necessary to say no, share their weaknesses, have difficult conversations, and share their unique perspective so that they can reclaim 500 hours a year. And the thing is that whether I'm talking to the CEO or whether they're in the boardroom, the mailroom, the classroom, or the living room, everybody can relate to those four masks. Some have them in some areas that are a little bit more than others, but everybody can relate. And the way that you can identify what mask is holding you back is we have a website called whatsmymask.com. So just whatsmymask.com. And you can take that assessment for free. It's five minutes and it'll tell you which of the four masks is holding you back and costing you 500 hours a year, what your authenticity percentage is and give you a personalized report on what it means for you now that you've identified these two things and what are some of the things you can do to overcome them. And whether whether somebody's in, in, in addiction like traditional addiction, or they're just like what we would call quote unquote, a normie. Everybody can relate to this stuff. Everybody can relate to hiding their true self. Everybody can relate to worrying about what Instagram thinks about them or whatever, what their boss thinks about them or what their customer thinks about them or whatever. And so people are really responding. And I think it's a really cool way for everybody to understand a little bit more about recovery in a context that actually specifically benefits them. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Yeah. So give us those. Uh, so 
whatsmymass.com is one web address. There's also michaelbrodyweight.com. Yeah, and- I'd say those are the two biggest ones now. Uh, go to whatsmymass.com and, and that'll also give you, that will also send you an email on how you can join the mastery program after you do the assessment. So that'll get you hooked up to the mastery program. And if you want to learn more about me and my story, just Google Michael Brody hyphen weight, B-R-O-D-Y hyphen W-A-I-T-E. I got made fun of mercilessly for having a hyphenated last name the first 25 years of my life. But the last 15 years, it means I'm the only Brody weight on the internet. And so it actually helps me with Google search. (laughs) (laughs) And I highly recommend the Ted talk, which now has well over a hundred, one and a half million views, I think. Yep. Uh, And the book, Great leaders live like drug addicts. Well, yes, Michael, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I, I just, I'm so grateful for the contribution that you have made to this cultural conversation. Uh, it's been it, it, uh, an enormous encouragement to me, and I know it's going to be a big help to the Samson Society. Well, hey, you know what? As I've been building this, the Samson Society and your work specifically were a big part of my inspiration. So it is me who should thank you for the work that you're doing to uplift so many people that need what you have to share. And I love what the Samson Society is doing and I have so much respect for it. And I'm grateful that we're able to help each other um, as we grow, even though I'm way behind you on the path. um, I'm grateful that you gave me a platform to share my message. Thank you, Michael. Listen, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. When I allow it to be, it has no control over me. back on the pirate monk podcast do you know what i was just thinking just now i have no idea yeah i just thought of three other things i was probably thinking uh <laughs> when i was think uh, listening to those three principles yeah i was just reflecting on what a perfect example of those three principles jesus was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean the the surrendering to his father's will, which is always so mind blowing, right? That this yeah, is, geez, yeah, that's yeah. Great. Doing the hard work, doing the uncomfortable work—that's kind of that's the gospel. Like all of this felt like a really interesting invitation toward taking up that cross, that yeah. discipleship walk. Um, but man, everything in my flesh resists all three of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And isn't I, I love that he kind of turns things on. I have come to to uh, regard my addiction as one of the greatest blessings of my life because I feel like I got painted into a corner. 
in the same way that Michael describes, you know, I've got to learn to do this stuff to live. And then it turns out it actually helps me in life. Yeah. It even helps me in business. Um, I, Michael in his book, you know, he, he, his book is written for, uh, just a general, uh, you know, mainstream audience. It's not a Christian book. Uh, he doesn't get explicit all about where he is faith-wise, except to say that he chooses to call his higher power God. Um, where was I going with that conversation? Uh, uh, with that thought? I don't know, but it's a oh, great—it's a great reminder oh, that true things are true. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he, you know, so he, uh, you know, like him, I have really come to be so grateful for the fact that I have this addiction. And I am always, I, I now know that if I stop doing uncomfortable work, eventually I'm going to be back at the brink of acting out again. Right. Right. Or you're just going to go. Yeah. Or if I try to control what I, if I surrender the outcome, I think is a great way to say, stop trying to control what you can't control. Um, just do what's right and let the chips fall where they may. Well, for somebody who, you know, spent so much time and still tries on a regular basis, I try to finesse life, try to anticipate where things ought to go, try to, you know, make things happen the way I think they ought to happen. And it's easy for me to to lose my ethical bearings in the middle of that and start to make compromises I shouldn't make, close my eyes to things I should be aware of. Um you know, the, the reminder that, um, you know, my obligation is to do the next right thing and surrender the outcome. And that not only is that my obligation, but that's how life is going to work out for the best anyway. I'm yeah. fooling myself because yeah. I try to control more than I actually can control and I wind up screwing it up more than I need to. But it always goes back to that first principle where we have to be authentic and take the mask off because that's the first yeah. place we'll slip back even in success uh, of yeah. addiction or in business. I mean, how old is this principle? We got to think about Moses. Jeez. He's, he's a yeah. leader. And I yeah. love when he gets outed in second Corinthians three, where we're not supposed yeah. to be like Moses who put the veil yeah. over his face after the glory was gone. Like what? Yeah. This is literally wearing a mask because, you know, we're not given his reason, his motivation. But the guy's like lying about glory still being there. And yeah. that is the point where we where I get, I'll speak in eyes, where it starts to creep back in that I have to fake something that was real because he, yeah. he had the glory. He had the moment. It worked for him. And then the the whole fear comes back, like, okay, well, now I have to keep that going, just like I had to keep the old masks I took off going. Like, this yeah. is an ongoing work that is as old as humanity. This is what <laughs> everybody has always struggled with. So if yeah. we're struggling with it, just we just need to remember Moses uh, acted like a douchebag, too. There you go. Wow. Well, uh... It's great to hear your voice, Aaron. Um, and we are going to be able to, we're going to get these things up so that uh, our our guys who now are uh, asking, you know, where, where's, the, where's the podcast? They're going to get these shortly. Um, what am I doing? I'm just blathering here, Aaron. I, I love know. you, dude. I don't even know what day it is. It doesn't feel like Monday to me. It feels like yeah. at least Wednesday. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this is the highly produced, extremely professional Pirate Monk podcast put together uh, in their spare time by a couple of volunteers. <laughs> That's right. But All sexy right? ones, sexy volunteers. Let's not leave that <laughs> off. Yeah. Uh, hey, as always, we would love to hear from you. Send us a, send us a note if you'd like to at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we're your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast.
sojourn I'm sitting here shedding my skin Don't nobody inside Ugly on the outside You're all messing with me for the shape I'm in I'm looking for a clean slate Just need to find a new mind state Hey, let's go look for squirrels And let's find something to do I think she's shooting it right at you I Look down, it's it right at you And the hair falls hard And the wind whips my face And I'm a long, long way From anywhere we see And the storm clouds flying high But all over my face And I'm a long, 